The Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome to Just Love. This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world through the prism of our Catholic social teaching. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities, host of Just Love. Tom Dobbins is with us and Marquisha. And we're going to have a conversation today about two topics and two events that are coming up, which are really kind of worldwide events. Now, intriguingly, they're incredibly disparate or incredibly different. One is the Super Bowl, which granted is an American event, but it certainly has worldwide kind of recognition and people kind of pay attention to it in every place. Although I think and we can talk a little bit more about this. We have to recognize the fact that when we talk about football as Americans, we're talking about a very different game than when the rest of the world talks about football. The rest of the world thinks football is played with a round ball. And we in the United States think of football as played with an oval ball. So it's a very, very different uh, use of the term. But anyway, be that as it as it may. So we're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about gambling as it relates to the um, to the Super Bowl and to football and sports in general. And then later on in the show, we're going to speak about what is truly a worldwide event, Lent Ash Wednesday. And, um, and we're going to speak about it from the perspective of eating and fasting and how that plays into spirituality of different uh, people. Um, so, Tom, um, how is your now second month of the new year going? Second month of the new year is good, Monsignor. Uh, you know, so far, I, I, I mean, uh, it's been it's been busy, but busy is good. You know, uh, I'm I'm enjoying uh, the weather. It's not too cold here in the Northeast. Uh, so, I mean, for winter months, I think it's OK. But unfortunately, Monsignor, as you know, we haven't had that one snowstorm we were talking about, so I'm still keeping my fingers crossed that February will 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 work for us, and we'll get at least one snowstorm. Are you one of those people who pays attention to the farmers' almanac? Uh, I do around the New Year, so okay. you know there's always those news stories. I mean, I don't purchase one uh, and I don't check it regularly, but I do actually pay attention to it around New Year and. And, and I, I I honestly don't recall if they said it was going to be a snowy uh, winter or not. Um, but, but I know Puxatawney Phil saw his shadow, so I think we're going to have uh, we're going to have an early spring. At least that's according to the groundhog. So not sure what the farmer's almanac said, but I think the groundhog said we're having early spring. So we'll have to well, see refresh, who's right. Refresh my memory about that uh, Puxatawney. Phil, if what which way indicates what's going to happen weather-wise? I think if he sees his shadow, I believe that means that we're going to have uh, a, a sh an earlier spring. And I think if he doesn't see his shadow, we're going to have six more weeks of winter. I think oh, that's okay. how it goes. So, right. but whatever, however it was, I know he did the thing he needed to do to be an early 
to say there was an early spring. I knew that. I, I know that's what he did. So now, now this Puxatoni Phil guy is, um, he's a groundhog, right? Correct. Yeah. Now, is there only one of them? Uh, well, there's the, he's the famous one. I think he's in, in Pittsburgh. Okay. Uh, and then we do have the one here in New York, Monsignor, who uh, lived on Staten Island that they make a big deal about. But he's the one who, when Mayor de Blasio went out to go visit him, that had a, a fatal accident. So that was that was kind of a big deal here he in actually New York died? City. At the he actually died? Yeah, he did. He, he oh. died, yeah. Oh. Mayor de Blasio, as you know, he was he was a tall guy. So he picked him up and then he and and he dropped him. And uh and and he didn't die right away, but he, he died of the injury. So yes, oh. he did. But the real but the but the real guy, the real authentic guy is out in Pittsburgh. He's in Pittsburgh, yeah. Yeah. Now, how long He's has this Pittsburgh. how long has this been going on? This I I think it's probably uh, at least a hundred years would be my assumption because I know you always see the old gentlemen and the old pictures with the top hats and they look like they're pretty much turn of the last century. So I think it's been going on probably since then. So, but but um, I mean, is the groundhog a hundred years old? No, no. I think this is the this is later generations of Puxatawney Phil. I think this okay. is later. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Well. Okay. So we'll we'll see what happens. So. Okay, the Super Bowl is coming up. So let's go to our first guest, who is Dr. Shane Kraus, the assistant professor of psychology and the director of the Behavioral Addiction Lab in um, the University of Las Vegas. Um, Dr. Kraus, thank you for taking the time to be with us um, on Just Love this day. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Great, great. So, I mean, I don't think we could have kind of a better place to doing this interview than you at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Um, it sounds really, really great, and especially on this Super Bowl weekend. Um, so, how do you? Uh, so, give give our listeners just a little bit of your background. Did you grow up in Las Vegas? Where'd you grow up? How'd you wind up in this field of interest? Sure. Yeah, sure. So I'm uh, my father was in the military, a Marine. A Marine. He was a colonel in the Marine Corps. So I moved around a lot as a child. Uh, but I I finished high school in California, and I uh, I went to my undergrad at Fresno State, where I met my wife. We've been all married almost twenty years now. And then I bounced around again for a master's, and then a PhD. I did the PhD in Ohio. My postdoc was at Yale on addictions. Uh, and I've been doing substance use addiction work for, you know, over a decade and more work on what we call behavioral addictions, things like gambling disorder or other other behavioral issues like problematic or, you know, uh, sexual behavior. So so I've been doing that. I've been in Vegas for about five years. Uh, it's a great place uh, because we have a lot of issues. It's a great place to be a clinician, which I am. I'm a clinical psychologist. And also to be a researcher to help, try to help people with problem gambling since Nevada, like everywhere else has issues with gambling. So it's a great place to do the good work and, and help others in the community. Hey, Dr. Kraus, uh, thank you so much. That was a really nice summary. The only thing I'll take a little bit of exception to what you said right at the end, where you kind of said, um, <clears throat> like every place else, Las Vegas has problems with, with addiction issues. Um, I don't think Las Vegas is like every place else, is it? 
Well, I, I think Las Vegas presents unique challenges, right? I mean, we have we we have more casinos, we we make more revenue from gambling. Um, but but at the same time, I think gambling, you know, New York, for example, has a very strong gambling revenue stream, a big, big lottery. So I think every state that has legalized gambling has issues with problem gambling. I think you're right. We have probably more people with problem gambling and other issues as well. But I, I would say that addiction crosses all, all races, all ages, all income, every, all communities. Uh, so I think, you know, what we do here can apply to everywhere else and, and the, and the state, you know, the U S and the world. So, so, so Dr. Krauss, just, this is a little historical thing, which if my memory serves me right, but I'm not sure it does. So I'll kind of test it out with you. Wasn't there like a long time because of maybe not the reality, but the reputation of Las Vegas, that sports events, sports teams kind of avoided Las Vegas because of that reputation. Is my memory serving me correct on that? No, I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, really, I think we're thinking that you're talking about sports wagering, right? Super Bowl is yeah. coming. Really, up until six years ago, sports wagering, sports betting was only legal, kind of grandfathered in in four states, right? And now, you know, fast forward the Supreme Court decision, it's 38 states, right? And it's grown from, you know, a couple billion to $300 billion earned in six years. Uh, in lots of places all throughout New England as well have a, aggressive sports betting behavior, right? So uh, so now the teams, NFL and sports are really part of that, that, you know, they're really cashing in, as they say. Uh, and I think now there's no longer that, oh my gosh, we're going to avoid, avoid this. Now they're running the commercials and, you know, in a sense, going to make money off it, right? So it's a big change, you know. Well, and, and also, am I am I also correct, at least when I look at some of those commercials and things like that, um, I may be not being technical in this, but you can bet across state lines online, can't you? Yeah, potentially, yeah. So, I mean, 38 states have legal. There's some that only allow mobile or online. Some state, There's only, you know, eight states where you cannot do it, really. I mean, at 38 uh, so it's pretty easy. And now with the apps, most people bet through the apps. They're not really going to a casino. You know, a, that's the traditional place. So I think that's why we're going to see. I mean, 28 million people are expected to gamble or to place a bet on the Super Bowl alone. Right. So, wow. we're, yeah, we're, we're, there's going to be probably several billion dollars wagered it for one game. I mean, just to give context, Nevada, Las Vegas. Uh, had $150 million spent on one Super Bowl last year just through the casinos. Given uh, a year later, given now that it's here, I know that number is going to be absolutely three, four times that. But that is no different from New York, right? So New York also, I just did a big training for New York recently. Uh, New York also has its challenges for problem gambling. And, and uh, just like all states that have legalized uh, gambling and have uh, large lottery systems, Powerball, things like that, right? So. Yeah. So we're speaking with Dr. Shane Kraus, who is the assistant professor of psychology and the director of the behavioral addiction lab at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas. So um, so tell us a little bit. Now, you mentioned 28 million people are going to to bet uh, this upcoming weekend. Um how big a problem is addiction? Because not everybody who bets is has a problem with gambling. They place a bet and they go on with their life. But how big a problem is it across the country? 
Yeah. So that's a great, so that's a really good question here a lot, right? So the reality is most people who, who gamble don't have an issue. It's a pretty small rate, probably one, two percent, maybe for people. Uh, we know U.S. military, certain groups, young men might have higher risk, you know, maybe higher problems. Um, I think for most people, they're not going to have issues. The issue lies that with now sports wagering is that it's so prevalent. The apps are very aggressive in sending marketing tools, marketing advertisements. So when you say like, you know, if you wager, you'll get a hundred dollar free play. Those are that's language. That's really what we call predatorial, and we know that's related to problem gambling uh, behavior. So, so you're right. Most people are gonna, you know, put in ten dollars and have fun, and that's and remember, gambling is entertainment. And as long as you remember its entertainment purposes, it's not an issue. If you think you're gonna make money, which is the concern that people have, and particularly younger men, this is the age group we should be concerned about. That's where we the risk factors happen in the ads. The the, the apps today are really using a lot of aggressive and I think predatorial marketing uh, towards gambling that they never have before. So um, let me let me jump a little bit ahead in terms of of that because of kind of recent stuff where some of the tech companies have been called on the carpet by Congress saying, that the way they set up their apps and things like that, it encourages bullying of teenagers. Now, I don't understand all of this, except as somebody who uses the internet, I do understand the fact that if I'm looking for a shirt online, within four seconds, every new search that I do gives me advertisements about shirts. Um, so I know a little bit firsthand, but can you say a little bit more about how you see, and I don't know what this means, but I know the words, AI, artificial intelligence, logarithms, all of that kind of incentivize gambling. Yeah, so so I think what we're seeing now in sports betting is probably where it's happening the most, is that technology, artificial intelligence, right? They're looking for... I'm going to mine your data and then I'm going to figure out, okay, I noticed that when I, when I send you uh, a marketing ad at, at four o'clock on a Friday, you're going to put a bet. So that's going to then send you personalized information or ads to target, to incentivize you to bet. Right. And then that's using this technology. And that's the issue uh, that, you know, this overly aggressive tailored marketing could be problematic, particularly what we know about people who, place on sports betting is that they actually use more substances than people who don't. And they're often using them when they're they're betting and they're watching games and sports. And that's where risk factors happen, right? So, you know, if people say, well, what should I do? I said, well, you know, set a limit, set, you know, never bet more than you can afford to lose immediately from your bank account. But also don't wager during the middle of the game. Don't wager when you're using alcohol or substances. But this is what's happening. They're sending lots of messages during the game. When people are excited, they're all pumped up. They're, you know, I lived in England and I remember how exciting, you know, the Patriot games, you know, were, and people are often overly emotionally excited. And then those moments make for, may probably financially, you know, concerning decisions. And that's how they use social media, right? They send you uh, ads, they send you stories that make you upset or happy because that keeps your emotional, you keeps you connected or longer online. It's the same formula. So, Dr. Krause, my takeaway from what you've just said is don't bet when you're drinking beer and eating pretzels. Bet 
when you're having warm milk and cookies. Sure. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. And also <laughs> place the bet 24 hours ahead of time, you know, and never, I mean, the golden rule is don't bet during the game. You know, people, they, they're pushing ads now that you're watching the game and they're trying to have you increase your bet. Why? That to me is just a risk, right? So just, if you're going to bet, place your bet ahead of time. Don't change it. Don't modify it. Don't add to it, you know? Right. Um, so let me ask you like a little bit of a, of a term that I've, I've heard. And for our listeners, for me, help me be a little bit smarter about this. Cause I've heard the, the phrase kind of an addictive personality. Is that a meaningful phrase or is it just things that the me that the media picks up? Yeah, I think it's more of a media term. I think what a more accurate way to think about it is that there are traits that kind of put people at risk, greater risk. And one of those is impulsivity. If you're an impulsive person, right, that's a risk factor. If you if you're having a substance use issue, you know, substance use issues, that's a risk factor. If you're struggling with depression, anxiety, trauma, that's a risk factor. So it's more about risk and minimizing that and understanding that. But I think per addiction, per addictive personality is absolutely media. I don't psychologists, I don't condone it. I think it doesn't make sense. Okay. So, so then tell, uh, tell our listeners when you look at what's going on in, um, you know, in the United States, how bad is our gambling addiction problem? So I think our, our gambling addiction problem right now is pretty, pretty low. You know, I think again, one, 2%, I think of the, of people who gamble regularly might be struggling the issue I'm worried about is that the proliferation of gambling through sports wagering and online apps is at a level we've never seen. So just imagine we went from, you know, six years ago, two, three billion to three hundred billion dollars uh, almost overnight with massive legalization on every state. Right. With no safeguards, with no real resources for treatment, no research happening, really, other than a couple labs, including myself. That's a risk factor because we know as as you make things legal and make it easier to do it, we know problems and addictions go up, right? So this is why they raise alcohols, you know, age to 21, they have restrictions because the more restrictions, the less we try to reduce problems. With gambling and sports wagering, more casinos than ever, more sports betting yet, you know, there's really no very limited safeguards. So, you know, trouble's coming. So, and somehow the way I do numbers, okay, mm -hmm. is, is say, okay, um, I think you said that 28 million people will probably place bets this, um, uh, this weekend on the Super Bowl in, in various ways. Well, if I do my little baby math, if in fact only 2% are kind of addicted, that's over 250,000 people. Yeah, but it's that's... gonna be, more, it's more than that though, because people who have a problem are more likely to be in that group. So it's probably, I would triple that number. Okay. Yeah, so I think it's gonna be, I think there's a lot of excitement happening, but I do think we're gonna have some scary stories on Monday about people who really lost yeah. everything. You know? Yeah, so I'll, I'll tell you right now, I have not yet placed a bet on the Super Bowl, um, and it's probably getting close to being within 48 hours of the Super Bowl. Um, I'm not sure. I probably will place a bet if I can cajole somebody into giving me points. 
I only bet if I get points. That's my 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 criteria for for doing. And I don't bet over and under. I just I bet with points. That's my that's yeah. my thing. Um, and that and that sounds like a great. I think I, that sounds like that works for you. It's all about finding what works for you. Yeah. I think the only thing is to let people know that they don't make money from from sports wagering. The issue is when you know we love our teams. We, we're so connected to our. I know every player. I know every number. And all of this, and they think, oh, that's going to give me the edge to really win, right? Yeah. Well, if that was the case, the sports betting apps would be out of business. But they're they're making more money than ever because most people can't predict something, and, I, and you just can't predict the game, right? And yeah. that's what's gambling. It's a, it's a chance, right? And so, but when you're drinking and and you have you think you have more knowledge, you make more mistakes, right? So, yeah. like you said, you play something, that's it, and it, it's done, right? Yeah. So, Dr. Krauss, let me tell you a little personal story where you talked about gambling as entertainment from my own life, my, my mother. my mother. So we were in the New York area. Uh, they opened Atlantic City, and she loved to go to Atlantic City. She really loved it. And the way she figured it out was that when they were going to Atlantic City, um, whatever the period of time, and my parents were middle, middle, middle class, not we weren't poor, we weren't rich, we were middle, middle. And so periodically they'd go out to dinner, not a whole lot, but they go out to dinner. But what she would do is they would say, okay, we're not going out to dinner this week. We would be spending $50, $75 on dinner if we went out to dinner. So my betting limit is $50 or $75 because instead of going out to dinner to be entertained, I'm going to Atlantic City. That was kind of how she figured out she could afford to lose money in Atlantic City. That that to me makes sense, right? So if you put $200 down and, and you can take it out of your wallet right there as cash or from your bank account, that's 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 fine. I mean, people spend money different different ways. It's just, oh, I'm gonna put half of it, pay half of it back on the credit card. No, that's where people get into trouble, right? So like you said. Knowing what you can afford to lose is, and it's entertainment. You know, you don't go to the movie theater and expect the money back from watching the show. So yeah. it's, it's the same thing. If, if you just set that expectation, you won't get in trouble, you know? Yeah. I, you know? So, so let me move you a little bit to your, your kind of uh, clinical uh, practice. So what are some of the techniques that you, or, or some of the ways that you try to help somebody who has a problem with gambling, how do you kind of help them to change their behavior? What are some of the things you point out or do to help them? So I think the first thing is it's what's the what's the relationship they have with gambling? Why do they gamble? You know, and and if it's related to stress or to make money or to you know decompress, whatever it is, we got to figure that out, and then we figure out well what matters to you, and if they're if it's their family, their health, their uh, friends. How do we then shift their behavior away from the gambling into something healthier? Um, because it's all about, you know, people have different values. They care about different things, and that's absolutely fine. But sometimes gambling becomes their primary thing in their life, but it's really not helping them keep their marriage afloat or spend time with their children. Or So really, it's about shifting their behavior to do something differently. But also, the first thing is, is why do you gamble? And if it's not really, like you said, for entertainment or you're struggling with other issues, maybe you need to really reevaluate that. And that's what we think we do with therapy and teach people skills how to block, you know, sometimes if they have to block, soft block, 
blocking software, if it's getting psychotherapy, we, we sometimes have to do medication for people. So it's, there's different things. They all work. It's just for helping figure out what works for that person. So, you know, that we're speaking with Dr. Shane Kraus, who is assistant professor of psychology, director of the Behavioral Addiction Lab in the Department of Psychology at the University of Nevada uh, in Las Vegas. And we're speaking about addiction, gambling, um, addiction. You mentioned something which, um, which I which I found very very interesting in light of some of the stuff that is part of our public policy debates, etc. You uh, and I hope I'm quoting you correctly. You said, well, you know, if you um, increase the barriers, less people will kind of um, my words fall prey to addiction. So as with drinking, we raised it to 21, less people drank. But there's a whole movement in other parts of the country saying, well, and I'm using a different word, okay? We're decriminalizing, we're making legal some drugs. There's a movement to make cannabis legal on a national level. Does that run a little contrary to your experience as a psychologist that we kind of are saying those things are okay if we legalize them? Um, it's a question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think so. If we'll use cannabis example. So Nevada has legalized cannabis, right? Yeah. And the issue that we're having, though, with legalized cannabis is, you know, again, I think incarcerating people in jail is for substance use for addictions really doesn't make a lot of sense. However, not requiring people to get treatment who fail to, to you know, to continually get in trouble doesn't work. So forced treatment does work better than letting someone not have treatment. That's been shown. And this is why Portland and Seattle are really seeing a lot of issues. Because expecting someone with a really severe addiction who's just lost an addiction to be able to make, uh, to really see the full picture and how devastating, it's just not going to happen. So, but on cannabis, yeah, we're seeing a lot of those issues. The problem, I think, even in Nevada is that, that, that we're seeing so many now people go into treatment or seeking treatment because cannabis right now is not well regulated, the potency, right? Cannabis is 10 times stronger than it was when I was in high school 20 years ago. So as potency for things go up, addiction goes up. And, and with legalization across the U.S., that would allow regulation of the THC, which hasn't happened. And it would allow, I think, greater resources to research prevention and treatment. Um, because I think people have, the, it's like alcohol, they have the right to be informed. We also have to have safeguards. And right now it's a state by state and that doesn't work. Uh, and potency is too high. I mean, people are I have so many patients who are coming in because the potency is too high. I mean, it's, 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 you know, it'd be like selling, uh, drinking Bud Light, but now it's like, it has a potency of moonshine and calling it beer. It's not the same. And that's federal regulation might change that. Okay. Professor Sh Shane Krause, as we're going into the Super Bowl, is there kind of a final word that you would like to share with our listeners about the topic we've been talking about? Yeah, I would just say that, you know, if you're if you're struggling with problem gambling, uh, you just know that every state has resources. Uh, you can call the 100-Gambler uh, hotline, which will help you get connected to resources. Uh, so that's important. Uh, if you have a family member who, or a friend who's struggling, the first thing to do is just have a conversation. Be open, kind, show support, and have that conversation. And often people are willing and, and they're waiting for you to have that conversation. If you're going to wager on the sports betting, or you're good on the Super Bowl. I just, I my last word is just set set a limit, 
Remember, don't wager more than you can afford to lose. Do it 24 hours and don't 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 gamble. Don't spend any money during the game while the game's happening. And please never gamble when you're under drinking substances or any substance use, because you'll just kind of probably make decisions that you really will regret. Dr. Krause, I have to ask this question and you do not have to answer it. Are you going to bet on the Super Bowl? You I'm, not. Oh, no, I'm oh, not. Oh, I'm I'm not, I'm not, I've never done sports wagering. And I, I think it's one of those things that I just, I, I don't know. Well, I, well, what, what if I gave you the chiefs in 10 points? No, I have my addiction. Ah. To, I have an addiction to traveling. I love traveling. So I love it. You know, one final thing, which I think yeah. I, I'd like to give you the opportunity to, to say this, you know, I, I think some people think when people have an addiction or problem, uh, it never works. Treatment doesn't work. They waste their time. They're talking. They're still at. That's not true, is it? No, treatment works. It works really well. And uh, and the more you can support a loved one or your partner, uh, the more successful they'll be. You know, and Gamblers Anonymous, all these resources are great. And also talking to clergy, priest, pastor, religious community, there's also support there. I think people just have to uh, be open to getting help, but knowing hope uh, treatment works. Everything will help you. You know, it works. It's worth it. Dr. Sharon Kraus, thank you so much for spending the time. You've been generous with us. And I think it's so timely because I think you gave some real, real advice. Place your bets today, not during the game, not while you're having a beer and pretzels, but do it ahead of time and set a limit. If I hope I got most of what you said right. Um, anyway, Dr. Shane Krauss, Assistant Professor of Psychology at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas. Thanks for being with us on Just Love. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Now, let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Tom, what are you doing for Super Bowl Sunday? Super Bowl, I'm going to have a quiet one this year. As you know, uh, I always usually spend it with my folks. So we're going to go up. And we're going to get a sandwich and, and we're going to just watch the game and and uh, and 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 just enjoy it quietly at home. Uh, we used to do we used to have a big party years ago. Uh, and so we have good memories of that. But we're going to we're going to stick close to home, I think, for for for, for this year. <laughs> well, you know, I remember, Tom, and you you also remember, too, that for many years, your dad uh, was one of the principal organizers of a fundraising Super Bowl party, which raised money for our youth sports programs at Catholic Charities. And your dad was very, very faithful in kind of putting that together. And it was it was always a very, very good, uh, good Sunday. Yeah, no, it was really excellent this year. We used to have a great time and we had so many people and, and you know, and we did a little bit, you know, I, I don't know what, uh, what, uh, uh, Dr. Krauss would say we did a little bit of sports betting there, but nothing too crazy, I think. <laughs> yeah, I remember we had the boxes. We had the boxes, exactly. The boxes. Exactly. <laughs> and, um, no, it's it's uh, no, it, 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 I I think Super Bowl Sunday is a is a good Sunday. Uh, 
for the most part. Um, you know, as there can be some negative parts, but I think for the most part, it's a it's kind of a common cultural thing for the United States. So I think that's a you know pretty good thing. So Tom, let's go to our our next guest, Professor Norman Wisba, who is distinguished professor of theology uh, at Duke University, and we're going to speak a little bit about. Lent, which is coming up, and he's written a book called Food and Fate, A Theology of Eating. Uh, Professor Wiersbe, thank you for joining us on Just Love. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you. Well, I'm delighted as we're getting ready for the Lenten season, and hopefully, since the word Lent has to do with spring, hopefully spring is coming in the not-too-distant future. That'd be lovely, um, yes. <laughs> it would be, would be lovely. Um, so give our listeners just a little bit of a sense of how you got to the place where you are now as the professor of uh, Christian theology and a senior fellow. How'd you wind up at Duke University? Uh, it, it's a bit of a fairy tale, I think, because I did not think this would at all be what I do as an adult because I grew up farming and thought that's what I was going to do. I love farming. But it was a terrible time to think about doing a farming vocation because the land pricing at the point while I was becoming an adult was the 1980s, which, of course, is a bad time to enter into farming. And so I thought about teaching and I had mentors uh, in college who said you could be a professor. And so they really mentored me in the ways of, of academic life, which I just didn't know much about growing up. And yeah, through a whole variety of circumstances, I ended up at a place like Duke teaching about food systems and agriculture and ecology and climate change. And it's been a wonderful journey. So where were you going to where were we going to farm if you did farm? Yeah, so it was Western Canada in the province of Alberta. So oh. the Rockies were my Western horizon and the prairies, the Eastern horizon. And uh, it's a beautiful landscape. Well, a little bit of personal thing going back four million years when I was a Cub Scout. They made us pick, or they assigned us a different province of Canada to learn about and thing. And mine was Alberta. Oh, That's, excellent! <laughs> Have you been now, to visit? But please don't ask me any questions because I think I forgot <laughs> everything about Alberta. Except, wait a minute, don't they grow a lot of wheat? Oh yeah, they grow a lot of wheat. It's also a resource-rich province, so a lot of timber, minerals, oil, and gas. It's sort of like the Texas of Canada because ah. it's it's got a lot of oil and gas that has been developed through tar sands in the north particularly ah. and there's a lot of questions about the viability of that project but it's been a very very big project for years now so okay so let's kind of move to the the topic of your book so yeah. tell us okay a theology of eating what's right. that about Yes. Yeah, so, you know, when I first started writing the book, a lot of my friends said, why are you bothering with eating? What does Christianity have to do with eating? And and I'm trained well, as Professor a... Professor Wisber, you got to understand, we, we, these are serious topics. Let me tell you what, um, what, what it's got to do with eating, because there isn't a single Christian alive who doesn't eat. Right. So it's but a universal... <laughs> yeah, it's universal. It's utterly basic. If you don't do it, you're finished, right? right exactly. But the thing is that many theologians have not thought that deeply about eating, right? So right. when Christians think about food, they usually think about hunger, very important issue, right. and then maybe about vegetarianism, right? Should right. we be vegetarian or vegan? 
But that was the extent of it. And what I wanted to suggest to people is, no, 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 eating is actually God's first declaration of love for us. Because in the creation of a world, God creates a world where everybody has to eat. Even the animals, the plants, everything that lives eats. So the question is, what does that say to us about the importance of God's presence in that activity, right? That the God who we worship is a God who, A, provides for us, and in the provision of food for us, declares not just that we should be fed, right, so that our tummies are full, right. but God actually creates a world that is delicious or potentially delicious. Yeah. And yeah. so eating and drinking and fellowship becomes mean, become means, I think, of witnessing to God's love for the world, which is a very big claim. That is that is fascinating. But, you know, a few exceptions. I mean, I'm not sure Brussels sprouts classify for delicious unless you put bacon with them. Then they <laughs> Well, it depends how you prepare them, right? <laughs> and this is also a wonderful thing, right? That cooking is yeah. one of these ways that we have of joining our love and skill to the love that is manifest in the world in its many, many flavors. And it's so, just a beautiful thing. So, Professor Wisba, a uh, little bit of personal um, history. My mom hated to cook. She yes. really hated to cook. She thought it was a waste of time. People spent hours cooking. You finished it in 20 minutes. So she, we never starved. She made meals, but she just didn't like cooking. I myself love to cook. It's one of the things I really, I enjoy doing. And I'm not a great cook, but I can read a recipe. And so I, so I do cook. So I think you're right. Cause you can do a whole lot with, um, with with different stuff in 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 cooking so i'm i'm on your side i think we've underestimated the spirituality of food and and cooking well and i think it's not for everybody right cooking but for eating those who is, are interested eating the, is eating is for everybody for sure but even some people have a love-hate relationship with eating because you know so many people are dealing with dietary limitations and right. Sometimes eating food makes people sick, right? So I think we have to acknowledge that this is a place where there is a lot of room for variation. Not everybody has to do the same thing. Right. But when you see the kind of expertise that develops with certain cooks, right? Who would have thought that something as basic as an egg could be in an, a vital ingredient in so many different foods, right? This is a world that is marvelous, and you only discover how marvelous it is sometimes when you engage it through cooking, right? Who would have thought that the world could produce an apple pie? I mean, that's just astounding that yeah. somebody thought you could take apples, have flour, some butter, and then, of course, you cook it and you add ice cream or frozen custard to it. It's one of the most magnificent things in the world. But uh, somebody had to figure out you could do that. Uh, Professor Wisba, this interview is over. I got to go eat. Because I'm just getting, I'm just getting real hungry from watching. Now you, you just picked on two things that I have really. Yeah. So apples, apples are my thing for this reason. And again, I'll share with you personally. Um, I live in the New York area. My cousin lives about an hour away in Connecticut. But one of our traditions is that um, every late September. We go apple picking. Yeah. So we go apple picking in the early afternoon. But then that night, we have kind of an Oktoberfest where 
with the apples we just put, we make applesauce and we make an apple pie with yeah. the immediately picked apples. So I'm a big apple, apple fan. Yeah. Well, and here you're pointing at something really important, how the provisioning of food for ourselves and each other is a cultural act of the greatest significance, right? It creates memories. It creates fellowship, right? It creates a space in which people can explore what's valuable in life, what they care about. And so your example is a perfect one about why food should be much more central to the way we think about spirituality more generally. Yeah. Right. Spirituality is not just a cognitive thing. Yeah. It's a fully embodied thing. It's a social thing. It's an ecological thing. It's all together. We're speaking with Professor Norman Wiesba, who is the Gilbert T. Rowe Distinguished Professor of Theology and the Director of Research at the Office of Climate and Sustainability and a Senior Fellow at the Kennan Institute for Ethics at Duke University. So we're moving up to Lent, which is um, a time when of penance, a time of renewal in preparation for Easter. And right. one of the things that traditionally has been, you know, part of the Lenten season and continues is the notion of fasting. Yeah. So where does fasting fit in to a spirituality of eating? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I think the first thing to say is that fasting is not simply about saying no to the gifts of this life, okay? I think a lot of people think, well, I'm going to give up sugar, I'm going to give up alcohol, I'm going to give up, and they just say no to a whole bunch of things. And the temptation is to think that those are bad. Right. I think that's a mistake. Lent, I believe, is about learning to sort of analyze and reorder your desires, Right. So that if you have an inordinate desire for something, that's a problem because then it means that you're not willing to share, that you're not willing to receive gratefully and give generously in return. So fasting or Lent more generally is that time where we think about what's our relationship to food like? Are we just wanting to grasp and take hold and not share? Or are we willing to receive with humility and then pass on these gifts with other people? And so Lent is this exercise that actually, I believe, prepares us to receive the world in the spirit of love in which it is given to us in the first place. Right? I think it's significant that the first sin in Scripture is an eating sin, because if we can't control our basic appetites around food, we're not going to be able to control our appetites around relationships, around technological devices, about consumption much more generally. So fasting is one of these very practical ways in which we say, hold on a minute, are we desiring properly with food or with any of the other things that we need to live? So um, do you have any recommendations or thoughts for our listeners about how do we do it? How do yeah. we you know, undertake those practices that get us to move in that direction? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think the first thing to say is that we are not always very clear to ourselves about what we desire and whether our desires are improper. So I say, talk with people who you love and who love you and ask them, how am I doing in this particular space? Do I have a disordered relationship or a desire that is out of control with respect to one thing or another? So you may, in talking to your friends, 
they'll say, no, your issue isn't food. Your issue is your cell phone. You're on it all the time. Right. So let's do a fast with cell phones and give that then the focus so that you can think about, well, if I'm out of control with my cell phone, what else am I out of control with? And when we do that together, I think we get to a better sense of honesty. But when we do it together, we also can be a support to each other. Right. So we've got someone that we're accountable to who's going to say, hey, how are you doing on that cell phone fast or how are you doing on that food fast or whatever it happens to be? Because we need help because we can deceive each other and we can deceive ourselves about what we most need to work on. You know, one of the things that I've that I think has become at least maybe not very popular, but some people will uh, engage in this. So, for example, when it comes to food, they will give up, let's say, a meal for week, maybe even going out to dinner or something. And whatever they would spend on that, if it was maybe a meal at home, it might be $15. If they're going out to dinner, it might be $50. And then they'll donate that money right. to a food bank, or they'll do sure. something like that. I've always thought that was a nice coupling of, of kind of fasting and food with yeah. also reaching out to others. Yeah, I think that's a great idea because for me, the whole point of Lent is how do we learn to love each other and ourselves better? And how in that loving that we do, we honor God who gives us all the gifts that we need to live in the first place. Yeah. And sometimes the, the main thing is not to sort of renounce doing something. It That's more negative frame, right? The better way often is going to be how do we then become the folks who give in a new way, right? Do we seek out opportunities in which we can give in ways that we had not thought before we could do, right? So that becomes the positive side, right? right. Feasting is the opposite, not the opposite, it's the, it's the other side of fasting, right? Yeah. Fasting is when we figure out our desire. Feasting is where we learn to share the love that God gives to us. I think that's an incredibly beautiful way to say that. I will kind of share with you that recently I maybe become a little bit more focused on the need to at least pay attention to the negative. So in other words, um, when, when we look at what's going on in the world around us, there is, as, as I believe it was Paul Tillich who said, the only theological truth or the one theological truth for which there is great empirical evidence is sin. Right. Um, you know, when we look at the evil in the world, whether it be um, the massacre in the Middle East, the now you the humanitarian crisis uh, as, as a result of that crime and there is evil in the world. Right. And so Sometimes I think there's a version of the way we look at spirituality, um, which we only want to focus on the positive. Mm -hmm. And we don't realize that even within our own very selves, we got to rid ourselves of some of the negativity and bad so that the good can flourish. I think that's right. And I think what needs to be said too is that for so many people life is very very busy and yeah. so the opportunities for them to do the kind of self-examination yeah are, are often rare yeah so to have a focused time where you can do that kind of self-examination and see 
how is the sort of the bad yeah. stuff in our world, which is omnipresent, right? How right. is that working its way into our very being so that right. we bring and perpetuate this kind of negativity, even in our sort of spiritual lives? And yeah. so to be able to say, you know, we're going to have a Lenten season where we focus on, right, the love of God and whether or not we're receiving it properly. Are we sharing it abundantly? Right. right? That becomes a time for us to then also bring positivity into the world. Because if we say, okay, this Lent, we're going to focus, right? We're going to focus on sharing. Are you going to put on a feast for friends in the middle of Lent? Because yeah. you want to say, I want to celebrate the gifts of God and I want to celebrate you as someone invited to the table so that I can thank you for the goodness of your life in my life. Professor Norman Wiersbeth, thank you so much. What a great way to move into what I call this 40-day season of God's gift that we can refocus, renew our lives and the lives of those around us and our relationship with God. Thanks for being right. with us. Thanks Professor for having Wiersbeth. me on. Thank you, Professor Wisba, Professor of Theology at Duke University. Tom, we'll take a break. Just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just and more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Um, Tom, um, you looking forward to Lent or not looking forward to Lent? I'm looking forward to it, Monsignor. You know, I mean, I, I think, you know, it... it it gives us, uh, as as Professor Wiersbo was saying, I think a, 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 some time to step back and to consider, you know, really our relationship with God, um, to focus on those things maybe we need to work on. And 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 I liked the way, you know, that he, you know, he mentioned maybe I liked that idea of that talking to other people because maybe your problem, like when you talk to your friends, maybe it's not food, maybe it is the cell phone, maybe it's this to sort of like, you know, kind of have a check-in with them about what they kind of think. I kind of like that. Good. Okay. So um, so thank you for being with us. Um, happy Super Bowl Sunday. Hope that everybody gets their ashes on Ash Wednesday um, and begins well this 40-day season of prayer, fasting, and charity almsgiving. Just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just than it will be more compassionate. This is Just Love. This is the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Listening to the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.